0: Hello and welcome to Voice Club, welcome to Bristol behind me and welcome to, in a few moments time, the Foothills of Prague where Melissa Warner speaks with Rick Doblin. It's a wonderful conversation, I hope you very much enjoy it. Here we go. And Rick, you've been an engine of change in the movement solidifying psychedelics as tools of personal healing and transformation. It's been a life's work, and I know, knowing you, the creative advance will continue.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we're not there yet, <laughs> <laughs> if <at> this, ever.
0: <laughs> no, but at this point in time, as you said recently in your talk yeah, here yeah. at Beyond Psychedelics, we have more psychedelic research now than the last 50 years. Yeah. So I want to start with the question, what has motivated you to make this your life's work?
1: Mm, fear. Uh, I
0: wasn't <laughs> expecting that.
1: Yeah, I've been able to try to turn fear into motivation. So kind of a not overwhelming fear, but it's fear of um, insanity resulting in mass murder and nuclear annihilation and environmental (laughs) destruction, all of which are real possibilities. Hopefully none of them are likely, but they're all moving in that direction (laughs) towards. So it was fear of the Holocaust, fear of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and fear of Vietnam and what our country was doing that all made me think That the overall trends were bad and that my parents were going to pay for my food and shelter. I had that sense that they would support me in that way, whatever I wanted to do, because I um, dropped out of college at 18 after doing a lot of LSD and told them I I wanted um, to study LSD outside of college on my own and I wanted them to pay for it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's, very, that's very lucky. And you grew up in a, in a Jewish family. That's yeah, right. And yeah. so you had a, a sense of the, the idea of multi-generational trauma growing up. Yeah. What was it like yeah. to grow up?
1: Well, I think that for me, uh, in some ways, the trauma was terrifying. But I was struggling to understand it from a position of incredible safety. And I, I've realized that I, we talk about white privilege you know, but I think I had, I had every, almost every possible privilege you could have. So I grew up, um, first off, you know, with this American exceptionalism, that America had won the war, that we were the most powerful country in the world. And in some part of me believed that it was because we were better people or something, you know, that, that were exceptional.
0: It was very natural, I think. Or,
1: or or that the, you know, the political system obviously is what's exceptional, that more, Cooperation and competition. But yeah, so I just grew up this way of this American exceptionalism. Like, I grew up with this sense of um, being white, being assimilated Jews. You know, m- where we lived, um, my parents had a house built uh, when I was 12 that was designed by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's. Oh, this be- lovely. beautiful yes. house it's that incredible influenced architecture. me. Um, but it was in land in a suburb of Chicago that they wouldn't sell to Jews. And so there was this piece of uh, four parcels of land that this four Jewish families got a Christian family to buy the land for them and then sell it to them. So that's how we, so we even went to a place where Jews weren't welcome, but I didn't know that kind of till later. But
0: you had that, did you feel that perception from the outside growing up?
1: No, I felt like I, I rem- that, that all these things were in the past, that World War II was way in the past and that this kind of, Prejudice against Amer- Jews were away in the past. So I grew up with the uh, Jews as uh, chosen people.
0: But something made it too. made it prevalent for you, this, you sense, this sense of fear, this sense of yeah. uh, wanting to assure a positive future and move away yeah. from, I guess, what these possibilities had occurred in, in your family's ancestry.
1: Yeah, I think it was that I felt so safe again, that, that my parents, um, my grandparents, I, I felt um just like I had every opportunity to do whatever I wanted and and so I could kind of look at not like a lot of people have to think initially you know survival how do I you know earn money to survive and I felt like my family would provide survival so that I could look at the next level of threats thriving thriving but also def- th- yeah thriving in the face thriving. Of the real challenges, yeah.
0: So, you know. what did what did you read? What did you? What was the experience <laughs> that, that led you to the point of saying psychedelics would be a tool for assuring a, a more positive future?
1: Well, I was um, a big, big reader. So, I was super shy in high school, and so there was a year ago I didn't even say a word to a girl, <laughs> other than to my sister and mother. Um, and so, I was living in books a lot, and, and so I started. The first book I ever read was called *The Canes Cains Mutiny*, and it was um, historical kind of uh, fiction. But it was about um, a domineering uh, captain on a ship where they have ultimate authority, and it was a mutiny among the men during during wartime. And so it was just one person against you know against an oppressive system. But that was the book that turn me around really. The key one was One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey.
0: Mm, I've heard that he uh, wrote that on LSD. Parts partial? of it he yeah. did,
1: but I didn't know that till after I read it. And so um, I read it and thought it was fantastic again.
0: Um, what about the message of the book? The message to you? of
1: the book is that there's this combine, this system that's trying to control things and the individuals who stick out There's some pressure to crush them, and how do you, the price you pay for trying to be your own unique self, and the importance of struggling, you know, and in some ways, um, the importance of quiet and laying low, like Chief Broom, who is watching, you know, the destruction of the hero, but... I just thought it was fantastic and was shocked when some of it was written on LSD. So it
0: changed your perspective. On,
1: uh, like if There's no way somebody could write this on LSD based on what I had been told LSD did. Yeah, you
0: know, we were told that, particularly back then, because you, you yeah. were, uh, were growing up the point where the laws were changing and all the research was being shut down, Yeah, even yeah. though there was so much promise in the study of addiction, in the study of depression, and also for enhancing creativity, but shift in the culture was causing these walls just to sort of come around these compounds yeah so you came in right at that point
1: yeah and then the other things that i was reading i was starting to read um more eastern mysticism i read a lot of um herman hess and Jung and freud and what i i aldous huxley and so i would read i tried to read everything somebody wrote my My grandparents had a bookstore
0: mm, I love the huxley quote uh, that psychedelics on the plane of art, perpetual creation, they may serve to heal mental illness in the future, and that is a future that you're bringing in to fruition um, now. yeah
1: yeah, yeah, we're trying to we as a large group of people trying to bring psychedelic medicines into the mainstream.
0: What is it about the psychedelic experience that you feel connects people to a sense of meaning and a flexibility in which they can orient themselves towards change and what what in your early experiences, what led you to go, aha, uh-huh, this is where I'm going to donate my energies?
1: Yeah, well the first time I ever took L S D, you know, you hear so much about this mystical experience and beyond ego states and how it Um, You know, at the time it was mostly like the time I was starting to do LSD, a standard dose was 250 micrograms. Right now, a standard dose of LSD is like 60 or 70 micrograms or it's a lot less. But it was designed to have these overwhelming mystical experiences and that was considered one dose. And so I had a lot of expectations of what that would be like. And I also had a lot of disappointment from my bar mitzvah which I had thought would be a transformative experience, but really wasn't. And so the first things I started noticing when I was under the influence of LSD for the, was the way in which there was different kind of a depth to my feelings. You know, this kind of very thoughtful, I mean, uh, way that I proceeded very, you know, above my emotional life, but in a way so I could look at the, because I was so scared, I had so much fear. It it was um, it it woke me up to my emotions.
0: Yeah, we often are out of touch with our emotions. We don't really know. We're not taught <laughs> yeah. how to interpret them, how to handle them. And there is definitely, and I, and I myself, coming from a scientific background, I very much stand on the side growing up of, of rationality and what can be calculated, and what we can figure out. And I think that that there is a sense that the mystical experience, what does it mean and what is the what are the more irrational, emotional parts of our brain that are definitely there and need to be recognised? How do we best approach them and sort them out in a way that allows us to access our best selves? And psychedelics definitely can be tools for those. I've really enjoyed some of your stories of mm. of your experiences. They've really enabled me to contact those both both sides of myself. And I particularly think of. Uh, the story you told me about how psychedelics helped you communicate with your inner critic, that voice that Mm -hmm. we all all Mm -hmm. have that always knows what we could have done better, but not really, doesn't really show us how. Can you tell us about that experience? (laughs)
1: Um, I'd be glad to, even though um, it was very difficult. Um, It it was um, at the time when, um, in 1985, when we were just starting to sue the DEA, And so there's a fellow, Leo Zaff, that was the, we call him the secret chief, the leader of underground psychedelic therapy who really helped introduce MDMA. He said to me that as long as I was starting to do more political work, he wanted me to do an experience with Ibogaine that he thought would help me for my own shadow. And
0: Ibogaine is quite different from other psychedelics, isn't it? It's it's used for this uh, healing of addiction.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's um, more similar than different in the sense that it does give you a broader perspective there's enhanced imagery I, I i think the difference is it's somehow more instinctual it feels like people talk about it as like their ancestors or more um LSD feels like what clear and clean up in the head kind of and psilocybin is a little bit more embodied mescal in that way too and
0: Ibogaines are quite a long experience as well. It's
1: very long, and so and it takes a long time to come on. So Leo said that he wanted to administer it with LSD. So it was three hundred fifty micrograms of LSD and about four grams of um, total alkaloid ibogaine. And so the the essence of it was though that I realized this inner critic and f- just felt the, the connection between self criticism and self hatred. And I got into this whole thing. Every time I would see that, I would kind of feel nauseous even more. The the LSD part went smooth kind of through this opening and through the peak of it. And I don't actually, you know, recall all that much of the LSD part of it because it was all about this sense of being... Appalled at the amount of self hatred that I had for myself, and then I would vomit. And then, yeah,
0: when we become aware of it, it can be quite shocking. That little voice that is this always there, just subtly letting us know that we're not doing good enough right now. Yeah. How did how did that shift? How did this create a shift into a new relationship?
1: Yeah, well, I saw uh, the the image I had was as a Jewish person that I was being crucified on the cross of self perfectionism and I just would see that and because uh, and, w- the worst part was I would say that um, and I was doing it to myself not only that if I could just relax and get over it I just didn't know how and so the way that I got through it was um, uh, I never could actually so what what happened was I just vomited for like 10, 12 10 hours or so just really feeling um, this trap this horror part of it and then I got exhausted, and so I call it transcendence through exhaustion.
0: I think the ordeal experience <laughs> is something that's quite relevant to psychedelics—the concept that by by facing something that is challenging, show, it shows us that we can be so much more and we can overcome.
1: I think that's very true, but I, but I also think that there's ways we make the ordeal even harder. I mean, if it, what what happened for me was just I. Somehow got all exhausted from that process, and I just moved into the opposite of this openness and self acceptance, and most blissful, peaceful, the whole night. And I was at a place where it was on the water, and I could see the stars, and I just was part of this beautiful, peaceful, accepting process. But I felt that I had not earned it. I hadn't like made the turned the switch to to, to turn it off. All of this self, I just had. And so I thought that when the sun comes up and the tide comes in, that I would be back stuck. That this was like
0: It was transitory. Grace. It was yeah. like,
1: yeah. Trans- and that's what actually what happened. So the next day I was, um, I couldn't even sit up without feeling nauseous. I had, couldn't eat. I had to lie down. I couldn't even leave. I was supposed to leave the next day. I had to stay there the whole day. Um, finally, um, barely, somebody came to me on the third day to take me home, take me somewhere else. And it wasn't until the fourth day that I could drive, but what I felt had happened was that I had more space in my mind. I could pay more attention to what was happening outside and also that I needed that self critic. That the thing was that I need you need that self critic to help you think about what you can do and to learn. It's just learning. And you wouldn't even have those lessons if you hadn't done things, which you can be proud of yourself for having tried something even if it fails. And so I could say, yeah, I can make a friend of this self critic and also by virtue of that, get more and more of the ideas of ways, self-improvement. And then the other idea is that you've missed the opportunity, you've blown it, and that moment never comes back again. And I I started seeing about how there were all these second chances that you you couldn't put it into practice in that moment. That moment is gone, but there's similar kind of moments or situations, sometimes with different people, sometimes with even the same people. And so that I've since, that's 1985. And I felt that To a major extent, the success that MAPS has had is because um, it's been more easy for me to learn from my mistakes. In fact, I call myself just a fuck-up who just keeps trying.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, the idea that uh, to succeed, you have to learn how to fail better each time. And there has to be a degree of self-acceptance in that process to, to view that. And I really like how you once described this experience <laughs> in the sense of turning that inner critic into, yeah. a, into a mentor. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. have changing that relationship that yeah. we can all do with ourselves.
1: Yeah. And you have to be a little bit gentle on yourself. Like, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think this, uh, and be proud of the action.
0: And to do that, though, we have to come into communion with ourselves, don't we? And that's what psychedelics help us do.
1: Yeah, very much, particularly if there's a supportive setting.
0: Yes, that's very important in a therapeutic setting.
1: Not only therapeutic, supportive. Supportive. Yeah. Like, like, um, what do you think
0: are the key ingredients for that setting?
1: Well, let's say that that you're surrounded by a safe place where you could go inward. You could close your eyes, you could lie on the ground, and you could be defenseless from the outside but that you could explore wherever your mind or feelings were taking you, that you're in that safe place. And also the attitude that you're open to whatever happens, that, that you can have a plan, but you're sort of unconscious. The rest of your mind has a, a deeper plan or a deeper sense of need.
0: Yeah, that, that sense of this inner healer something that's very important in psychedelic healing, this, this natural intelligence that our, our unconscious minds do seem to have about the direction that we need to go. I'm quite curious to hear more about the experiences in the MDMA trials yeah. for PTSD and encounters with this inner healer.
1: Mm, okay, yeah. I'll, I'll just add on that last question, yeah. though, that that I think you could have this openness to whatever would happen and the sense of safety outdoors in a dance party with, you know, friends around you. Or you could have it indoors in a treatment center, or you could have it camping out by yourself or with a few friends it's a little bit harder to do by yourself because you really need to feel safe in that spot. Mm. But it's good to have someone that's a mediator between a one world and the other, a sitter. Yeah, someone who yeah. perhaps
0: isn't on the psychedelic who can create that safe space.
1: Yeah, or it could be in a church. So I guess what I want to say is that there could be medical use, there could be religious use, there could be uh, ceremonial use, recreational
0: I think that, yeah, the betterment of it well be. people is something It's a very important concept in the psychedelic world as well. Yeah. This is not just uh, something to heal illness, but to Im- improve the meaning and in, our, in our lives and our relationship to ourselves.
1: Yeah, uh, one way to think about it is that we might be well, but we're not all that well. <laughs> mm. There's a lot of ways we could be well, more always, well. Yeah, there's always there's more to go.
0: Like self-actualization, <laughs> and, and, I think, is a, a goalpost that's going to keep moving.
1: Yeah, and also even if we're well, I mean, just when you think about what's happening to the Earth and the species and the massive die-off and the threats, you you have to spend some time feeling painful. And so even if you're well, you're processing massive trauma and murder and horrible things you know, and risk, and, and we
0: blank a lot of it out, don't we?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's hard to function. Um, but I think that's. So I think maybe the idea of betterment of well people—we're not actually all that well. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of us. Some, I mean, or and and what that does though is that gets into the discussion about prohibition and post, religious freedom, post medical, use, limitations, which are valuable and crucial. We are going in those ways but there is this bigger sense of need and importance and human rights and freedom.
0: Yeah, we can come back to the a just because we've, yeah, we've yeah. gone so down bit, this yeah, this yeah, path. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and also taking it back to the beginning idea yeah. of multi-generational trauma, yeah. I think it is a, it's a really important point for both our countries, yeah. uh, Australia and the United States, having yeah. a history of trauma in our First Nations people.
1: Well, even the whole, australia being founded by prisoners being sent there you know exiled so you're a country of exiles and you know yeah bad criminals type
0: it's yeah, so a cha- changing our storylines is something psychedelics are really helpful for i guess and that can be ha- that can happen on an individual level or on a on a wider scale
1: yeah yeah so like some of the examples of um an inner healer um in the studies. Um, a lot of it has have been about um forgiveness of others actually
0: yes well yeah uh i think forgiveness is a gift that you give yourself actually yeah yeah it's one of the ways to set yourself free from trauma and, yeah. and i'm quite yeah. curious to hear more about your, your thoughts on, on that
1: yeah well um one of the Israeli doctors, when we were first starting to try to do the project in Israel, we've done it in multiple sites. Um, he was a traditional psychiatrist, and he asked this question, which was, "Is this for the um, victims or the perpetrators?" And he said, "I don't think this should be. This would work for perpetrators." Mm. And and I said, "No, that's not the case at all. That it's harder sometimes to forgive ourselves than it is to forgive other people." And so what we've seen is that people can forgive perpetrators. They can see the pain that drove people to do things, horrible things to them. They can see that, but then they can also, uh, you know, people might blame themselves for getting in those situations or then they can forgive themselves. And
0: there's a huge aspect of trauma, feeling like there is always something more you could have done to avoid the situation that has led to you feeling this way and feeling trapped in your own mind.
1: Yeah, one person had said that the perpetrator told her that if she ever told anybody about what happened, he would kill her.
0: And that was in an MDMA, PTSD so,
1: yeah, yeah, trial? Yeah, no, that was a prior session. But, um, but speaking about it was liberating. You know, the, the, the fear was carried that whole time. Um, there's ways in which people, some of the veterans, have killed innocent people.
0: Yes in war. That's, in war of course that happens
1: yeah and, and they were scared and they were made quick judgments that were wrong and so particularly one that had killed two little girls that they were driving and the father was driving and wouldn't stop and he couldn't figure it out and um, so just forgiving themselves now I think there's a edge it's not like they think they did the right thing it's not like people have said to me are you making war easier are you making it easier for soldiers to do horrible things and then just take mdma and then they're fine and they're going to go out and do them again and so I, I think it's important to say that it was forgiving but not um thinking that it was okay it was something that they had to accept and move on not so much forgiving doesn't mean saying it didn't matter or it wasn't okay
0: no, of course not. I feel like getting in touch with the roots of your trauma, knowing where they occurred. If this was in war, I think it would yeah. probably have the opposite reaction that you wouldn't want to be going back. It's not like you know, put on a band aid, trauma fix <laughs> that send you back to the front lines. No, that's well, I can't imagine that would be the reaction of any of the soldiers in the trials. Is that the well?
1: I think the difference is that if you believe in the mission, you know, that's the question. Is um, like if you were in a war for survival and somebody and you got wounded and you. Uh, needed to um, take some time to get emotionally patched up, and you felt that everything was at a threat, you might go back to the war. But if you don't really believe in the mission, like with Iraq, the invasion of Iraq is our optional war. And a lot of people grew to see that we weren't helping and that it was not welcome and that they didn't believe in the mission. So I think, um, because we've had these discussions with uh, the Department of Defense and other people, it's like the sooner you can treat people to the trauma, the better, which means moving from veterans to active duty soldiers, Mm. if you can, or moving from people that have had PTSD from a childhood and then waiting till they get adults and then treating them. You know, actually, I mean, the FDA is requiring us to do pediatric studies once we complete the studies in adults. So I think this
0: so treating childhood trauma. Uh,
1: yeah, very much so. Uh, well, one of the friends that was at the conference here, Torsten Passy, was like, what happens if you were um, doing MDMA therapy long ago and a Nazi concentration camp guard said they needed help? Would you treat them? You know, is that just, you know, they're doing this inhumane thing and you just help them process and they go back and they, you know, shove more people in the gas chamber. I mean, that was his his worry. Is that happening? Mm. And so I I think that it's not likely to be that. Yeah, I think when you get sensitized to the emotional consequences of what you're doing, if you don't believe in it, it'll make it harder to do.
0: Yes, being in touch with yourself. I think it's totally relevant for veterans, but also victims of sexual assault and domestic abuse. There's a sense that I I know one person who experienced a, a rape, and she was concerned that if she were to use MDMA to heal she wouldn't just be healing herself but she would be losing her a sense of injustice Mm -hmm. towards her abuse I through our conversation I sort of communicated to her that Liberating herself from the rigidity that trauma causes around our, our, our functioning, this frozen state in time, that's what it is, it's, a, it's an entrapment in time, yeah. would actually free her to do work in the world, to change the mechanisms that have, in society, that led to this mentality of the man who perpetrated the abuse against her. It's ai am quite interested to hear your thoughts on, on the other side of trauma, which is stuff that happens in in everyone's lives, domestic abuse, sexual assault of women, and what MAPS is doing in regards to that side of trauma.
1: Yeah, Um, because there's way more trauma from those causes than from war. Mm. And and I think sometimes people lose sight of that because we're just talking a lot about the veterans. But I'm curious, did your friend actually try MDMA and what impact did it have if she did?
0: She did try it. And it had a very positive impact. Uh, it did reveal, in fact, she didn't even have firm memories of it, but her trauma had gone right back into childhood. Mm. And she was able to realize these patterns that had led to her eventual uh, re- more recent sexual assault where she was fulfilling these these rigid behavioral roles since her childhood. And she was able to leave the environment that she was in that was a dangerous one where she was actually still living with the perpetrator. Wow. Yes, so a very positive effect.
1: Okay, so it didn't make her uh, excuse it like it's okay totally and she'd stay not. with them forever. In fact, I, uh,
0: the- I, she worked very hard on cultivating a, a lot of research about uh, the nature of sexual abuse and the prevalence of it in society after the rape. And I think, I think that the MDMA actually made it easier for her to tackle those issues. Hmm. And to deal with something, it would be quite triggering otherwise. And she used that knowledge to empower and to teach other women.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, We've had, um, a lot of people have said, will MDMA work with complex trauma? Where people are abused as a child and they're continually raised in this abusive environment.
0: Mm. Um,
1: As opposed to just like a one-time sexual assault or something like that. And so we've had a lot of people that have had that chronic kind of complex trauma that still have been able to be healed with MDMA-assisted therapy. And the way in which it seems to, to work, a lot of it is that um, just a lot of it is just processing the, the emotions. People are, when things are happening, they tend, a lot of times people tend to dissociate. So we have a measure of dissociation, and we find that those people that are higher on dissociation take longer to heal because it takes a while the fear is so great that that was their defense strategy well
0: yes association at one point in the trauma saved them from the full experience of the moment in which they were traumatized so it's a protective mechanism which is why it you know in the brain it's so locked in because this is you know this is what allowed me to survive
1: yeah and it also helps you to stay um, conscious to pay attention to ways you might escape or ways so it's it's not just uh, yeah it's both helping you with really painful emotions, but also, yeah, deck, you know, ideas that you might get about increasing your chance to survive.
0: Yeah, I think it's quite interesting how MDMA actually is likely to be, what the mechanism is in the brain of how it heals trauma. This idea that by remembering the trauma in a, in a safe cognitive space and a sense of love and a sense of complete ease that we can change the emotive aspects of that memory could you explain a bit more about how that works
1: yeah there's um, lucky for me the FDA to make a drug into a medicine you have to prove safety and efficacy but you don't have to prove mechanism of action so but we do know a lot from other people have funded mechanism of action so the emotions get frozen when they happen um, there's the uh, fear processing part of the brain, the amygdala, which over time, actually, in PTSD, patients gets more and more active. You kind of repeat these fear cycles it's all over. Stuck, stuckness. Yeah, the prefrontal cortex, where we kind of think logically and put things in context, that shrinks for people in PTSD. Their emotional and lose part. lose
0: their sense of self.
1: Yeah. And then there's, um, with MDMA, it almost does the opposite. It does the opposite. It it reduces activity in the amygdala, so you can take fear emotions. And then it increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. But the other key part is that it um, increases the connection between the hippocampus, where memories are processed, and the amygdala. Mm -hmm. So fear-based memories can now move out of this place where it's like they're always still happening or about to happen, which is what what you talked about with time. You know, you're sort of stuck in the past. That you you haven't been able to put something in the past, and and so this movement of memory from this kind of immediate through processing, and often that takes place emotionally, crying, but also a lot through the body. There's a expert in uh, PTSD, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, mm, yes. and his book is really terrific, and it's called "The Body, the body keeps, keeps the, the Score." score yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so,
0: I recommend that for anyone <laughs> listening out there.
1: Yeah, he's principal investigator on our Boston site.
0: Mm, yes,
1: yeah and so what we see a lot of times is that it comes out not in like necessarily like realizations, but it comes out in the release of energy in the body. People could be shaking or crying or, or just like kicking or just like for extended periods of time sometimes um,
0: resolving what they couldn't do in the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, processing, yeah, kind of, and resolving, yeah, that it's like stored all this energy that's then released, it's like, you know, after, it's like grieving, you know, you can hold back grieving, and then when you cry and can grieve, then you, you know, you've taken it in more, and things change, and you can move on.
0: And allowing ourselves to express those emotions can be difficult, but it is very, it's very important.
1: Very much.
0: Uh, I also like the idea that MDMA, uh, the, the concept that within memory, every time we remember something, we don't just uh, reread the file, we take out the file, put it on the laptop, and retype it. yeah, yeah. it it's, it's recreated each time we remember something. and MDMA, what may be happening is when we remember this this moment in this context of love and acceptance, mm-hmm. we re-encode the memory. Without the fear and without the pain.
1: Yeah, so I was just at the um, uh, Czech uh, National Institute of Mental Health uh, earlier today, and um, they were doing, you know, it was for mental health, and they were showing me some of the research that, that they do that um, with rats, and they have one thing that's called episodic memory. So it's where they're trying to see if um, how much rats can remember about a particular maze. Um, and it's it's a memory for the episode, but our memories are sort of combinations of episodic memory and emotional memory. And so what we see with MDMA for trauma is that the episodic memory is increased because so much of it was linked with pain and was forgotten or suppressed or subconscious. So people under the influence of MDMA have an increase in memory of what actually happened, but the emotional memory is switched around from the the panic and the fear associated and the lack of trust in the world is changed to a sense that you're processing it peacefully it was in the past and so then when the memory gets reconsolidated it's you even have a better episodic memory and you've switched the emotional tone
0: which is really important for healing
1: and you're growing new neurons so there's neurogenesis there's different pathways and we've shown that after uh, PTSD treatment um, In a bunch of patients, the amygdala activity is actually reduced. You can show physical consequences of changes in brain.
0: Genuine structural changes in the brain.
1: Yeah, well, these are just so far just um, activity. Yeah. I don't think there's been, I don't know if they've shown, but yeah, there are studies now more and more showing neurogenesis from MDMA and other psychedelics, but I don't think that the neuroscientists have shown new structural pathways yet. Maybe they have. a change
0: a change in connectivity changing. Yes, that's I'm quite for sure. interested in yeah. bringing it back to this concept of the the mystical experience or, or peak yeah. experience I think are uh, interchangeable terms mystical experience um, And peak experience peak experience being defined by Abraham Maslow as yeah. a, a important step for self-actualization um, on the hierarchy of, of needs so what is it about this peak experience that you feel connects people to meaning in mm. their lives and to, and to change?
1: Mm. Well, it's so interesting you mentioned that about Maslow. So from the needs hierarchy where you're saying the um, self-actualization as, as being the top, and then you're, so it's more like your survival needs, uh, your community, social needs, and then self-actualization at the top. So the peak experience idea is actually something that Maslow changed his ideas over time. Mm. And what he, he started humanistic psychology, and that had this kind of need hierarchy. But he also, near the end of his life, started transpersonal psychology. And so he changed the need hierarchy so that it was self-transcendence above self-actualization. And that's the movement towards kind of um, global spirituality or spirituality you know, that, that seeing the bigger picture. And, and then it comes with that, a certain peacefulness about death and a transcendence of time and space. And so the peak experience is meant to be this a meaning of life, the sense of how we fit into this bigger picture. and But there's many different kinds of peak experiences. You know, they're not all light. Some of them are, you know, just doing things that you're very proud of.
0: Yes, like you could uh, you could uh, hike and climb a mountain. That could be a peak experience. Or you could take the <laughs> yeah. milligrams of, sil- of psilocybin and, and that would be another form of having a evidence-based peak experience which has the potential to shift our, our lives. And I was interested in, in the word transpersonal psychology because I'm not sure if everyone is familiar uh-huh. with that. And uh, you're one of your mentors, of groff Yeah and yeah. how that has shaped your connection to psychedelics and what and your yeah
1: well the book you asked before about books and so um where i learned about transpersonal psychology and where so i was um, you know 18 and had um taken a lot of lsd and was very confused and knew i wanted to drop out of college and went to the guidance counselor at my college and said help me you know make sense of all this all these raging emotions and ideas and And so he gave me Realms of the Human Unconscious by Stan Grof to read. And that's where I first started um, understanding about this um, transcendence of self, or the, the, transpersonal means um, between, it's like something that we all have, you know, so it's, but it's beyond the personal. So we all have the confrontation with death and we all have the need for community and love and the need for, you know, all the things in the need hierarchy yeah and so i started realizing that here was a way through a combination of um experiments with thousands of people under the influence of lsd where i mean stan said that the um, lsd is like the telescope to astronomy or the microscope to biology lsd is for the mind like that so, yeah, I think so, it's a
0: really powerful quote and quite accurate.
1: Yeah, and so from all of what he was saying, here was this broad understanding of uh, of where the psyche goes, and it goes into these, or I don't want to give up-down kind of metaphors, but it, it extends like a rainbow or something into these um, shared kind of spiritual areas that give you meaning for your life and give meaning to the daily moments and gratitude for the chance to be alive and that they're transformative
0: yeah I think spiritual spiritualism can be it's a hard word for some people particularly of a scientific bent but we are shifting in our relationship to that word I, I love how um, the neuroscientist Sam Harris has come out with his experiences of, of, of evidence based spirituality if, if there is such a thing but I think psychedelics do, rel- do you, kind of relate to that what, 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 do
1: you know what Sam Harris said was his most mystical experience of his life that he's written about do, do Is you it know
0: psychedelic ex- MDMA MDMA yes exactly uh, yes yes yes, yeah. yes. yes. And, and I know that you, you have said to me that, that <laughs> yeah. you your at first MD was it your first MDMA no no, no. no. It was, it an was was MDMA experience yeah. was your most spiritual uh, moment C- can you share that with y- us yeah
1: well okay so this was a, at a point in time we also not it was around the time that I had the Ibogaine experience it was also in early 85 and I had been um, working with Brother David Steindelrost. I mean, he'd come and taught some classes at Esalen that Stan had organized that I participated in. And when I learned about MDMA, and I got, uh, I really appreciated him. He's kind of a Roman Catholic, mystic, open-minded. And when I was learning about MDMA, I started talking to him about it. And eventually he said he wanted to do that in the monastery as half doses for meditation. And he was willing to do it. And... And... Uh, So it was this period of time where we're engaged in a fight with the DEA. We're about to sue them. And also um, I had no relationship at the time. And so I was feeling alone and... So I decided that I would... I had a power spot at Esalen for me.
0: Can you tell me where it was? Um, I, I'm familiar with Esalen. Ah. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah,
1: well, I spent a Very lot a of time I much recommend visiting it. Yeah, yeah. I spent a bunch of time there at, with Stan and otherwise. So there's um, a, a creek that goes through the property. There's the big house. The, there's the... Um,
0: near the small waterfall.
1: Near the small waterfall, near where the... Um, um, right at the edge of the cliffs. Uh, so where that waterfall goes down, and it goes into the ocean, right on the other side of it. So there's a path from the big house. You can't get down from uh, the rest of Esalen, which is their rooms and the hot baths, the, the the hot tubs and the where the guests stay. But across the river, across the bridge, you come from the other side, and you go down to where the river is, and then you walk across it. It's not that deep and there's a little spot that's about the size of this bench <laughs> where the mountain comes right behind and there's enormous boulders that are you know out in front of you ways out but so the high tide comes right around and right to there and i would um, but you could be in this little spot surrounded by at the most you're safe and dry the whole time no matter what the tide does and, but it's right nearby. you got mountain behind you. This little river. Was, and it was safe, though. I felt... So this was where I decided to do MDMA by myself at night, um, down and camping out, and just feeling really, really safe with the universe. It felt like the universe was my front yard. <laughs> you know, the ocean was the front yard and the sky. Was, and so part of the night was spent... Um, looking at a tree and somehow imagining that the tree was the DEA and different people were in the the tree were looking at me in different ways and I was trying to negotiate this idea of how do I sue the DEA and stay safe and so I I came to the conclusion from that that um, that somehow they're always looking for under the rock or what's being hidden and if you come directly at them there is a certain kind of safety in that And so I felt comfortable with that. But then I started thinking about why would Brother David want to be um, celibate? Why would anybody want... I could understand more wanting to be reflective, you know, and spend time meditating. and disciplined. disciplined, But why would somebody want to, you know, not have human relationships like that um, and be celibate? Or not have human sexual relationships like that? And so I just started thinking about him for a while and just speculating on it and then I started thinking that um, here I was this the roar of the ocean was incredible and the, the the vastness of the stars and I just thought man I'm so tiny compared to all of this and and I could just the more I beheld the bigger God, I was like I would just fly up I would lose myself and I would just fly up and and I thought how come after a while I realized I was still there somehow that there was something that was keeping me there. I didn't just fly out into the universe and I started just pondering the fact that it was gravity. It was the thing that holds things together. That that there was kind of a um without gravity we would all be dispersed and everything would be you know uniform or whatever. So I felt like this gravity was um this force of love and that it was holding things together and then I felt it as if it was the arms of a lover. And I felt like I was being cradled in the arms of gravity. <laughs> and and it was so warm and rich that I, and then I thought that's what the monastic life is about, is that if you can have this warmth to the universe, if you can somehow, you don't, you, you know, it doesn't come from an individual, it comes from the universe. And if you can feel it that way, that warm. Um, and so I, I felt like I, understood a bit about uh, the monastic life and I thought well great I've done that with MDMA now I don't need to be celibate <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can go yes, off and you, find you, a girlfriend you got, you, got the, you got the message yes <laughs> right.
1: so then
0: uh, that's um, the important part yeah. here. I, I like uh, okay you, you go, you go.
1: <laughs> well let's see so 30 years later I was at a conference and I was able to sit next to brother David 30 years after that And I was like, Brother David, I had this experience, most spiritual experience of my life. You were involved in it, (laughs) you know, and I want to just describe it to you and see what you think of it. So he said, "Okay." So I told him that story. And afterwards, he looked at me just for a second and he said, he said, Rick, I think of gravity every day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So he had the relationship. Yeah. I think it's interesting how you said you felt like uh, the ocean and the stars were your front yard, and yet that they are. They are our front yard, aren't they? Yeah. We, we we always forget. Yeah. And yeah. isn't it wonderful when you when you, ha- when you feel that way and, and you know it?
1: Yeah. And I think feeling it is part of knowing it. Actually, Rita Marley, who is married to Bob Marley, she had an album that's a terrific album, and the name of the album is Who Feels It Knows It.
0: And that's the connection we're looking for. And that is something yeah. definitely that psychedelics can provide us. Yeah. And so that, that's a great launch pad for the rest of your life. Psychedelics are just tools. They're just one, one facet of, of a healthy life.
1: Yeah. Although I would say that there's many different journeys to be launched on throughout your life. Yes. so I see that psychedelics have a different role at different stages of your life. I,
0: I like this point very much. I, I myself am not a fan of the Alan Watts quote um, that once you get the message, uh, hang up the phone. like I would think it' would be terrible <laughs> if you had you know never taken MDMA or psychedelics again. <laughs> or, After that you had that moment of, of yeah. union yeah. With, with nature. There's yeah. so much more to learn and at different times. could, could you
1: Yeah, I think that there's many different messages it's not, I think there's a certain, we all want to have the message. I know the truth. I've got the message. And then you can relax, but things are constantly changing. I would say one of the things that's so uh, terrible about Trump, just to make a pivot there is let's make America great again. I mean, you can't be great again in the way of the past. You have to be great in response to the changing of the future and the, and looking forward like that. And
0: Engaging with uh, an evolving process that's constantly moving.
1: Yeah, and when you think I've got the truth or I've got the message, it's kind of fixed in time, and it, it's a lazy kind of way of thinking, actually.
0: Yes, I agree. <laughs> and I think, I think, I think I often think of psychedelics is also a bit of a workout for the mind, like uh, going to a gym for the mind, and uh, they definitely don't yeah. encourage laziness, do they?
1: Yeah, not at all, and I think the other part is that there's, some, there's another part of that that's really a misunderstanding, which is that we can see things clearly and know anything clearly or certainly. We're always seen through filters. We have unconscious filters. So we shouldn't have confidence that we really know what's going on. <laughs> and no. so, you know, to, to, to keep questioning, you know, it's important to, to not think, oh, I've got it
0: keep questioning and and keep trying i think very fondly of the chain of emails we had where we (laughs) had synonyms for the word uh tenacity as a sign-off i think i i I love it because it's something that you so embody as Uh, a person and i I think it's something that we could all Mm. have more of in our lives and the way we approach our passions in the world can you tell us a bit how you've been able to embody this within yourself
1: well one way is that, I, you know, I had this idea when I was 18 that I wanted to devote my life to psychedelics as a response to both personally what I needed. Well, actually, I'll say that at 18, I kind of came up with this idea that um, there was two things that I wanted to do. One was to learn how to trip, and the other was to learn <laughs> how to make love. And that those are ways about inner and outer, kind of. And that I wanted to work on both of those. That would be the judge of my life, in a way. You know, those would be the... And so... I've never had a better idea. <laughs> yes,
0: I, I actually think I might take that on myself. I think that uh, it's something that I encourage everyone listening to do so too. Uh, uh, I, that; It doesn't just apply to the most obvious meanings, which of course are very important too, but to how we approach uh, our morning, how we approach our routine yeah. as well, how we approach our co-workers, um, how we approach strangers' knowledge.
1: Yeah, and and I felt a lot of the times, too, that the resistance to psychedelics and to integrating them into our culture was a fear of change, a fear of facing oneself, that that, that resistance wasn't a sign that I was on the wrong track. It was a sign I was on the right track. And what was driving me was the fear that exactly. if doing nothing, the, the irrational can take over.
0: I love the Stoic phrase, the obstacle is the path. Yeah. And yeah. I, I actually love that you, you, you've sort of been able to internalize in yourself that that moment when you when you approach the obstacle, that isn't a moment where you, you should move back. It's actually get closer and find out more because that's the way to step over.
1: Yeah, when I was 21, I had the great opportunity to raise a timber wolf from eight weeks old to two years. And uh in Florida, there were
0: that's that's incredible. You yeah. raised a wild wolf.
1: I raised a wild, 100% Alaskan timber wolf. Um, there, I was in Sarasota, Florida, the home of the winter home of the Ringling Brothers Circus. There was all these people that had carnivals and people had wild animal breeders. And one of them breeders was shut down for the Humane Society because they weren't taking care of the animals. And the female wolf was pregnant and had a, a litter of uh, eight cubs. Eight, eight. Little wolves. And the zoos were full and the sanctuaries were full, and they uh, put them um, an ad in the paper for people that they could apply to see if they thought you had an appropriate place for a timber wolf in Florida.
0: Well, well, well first, okay, I have a few questions. What's his name?
1: <laughs> Phaedrus, from another book, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle yeah, so Maintenance. I
0: the book. It's a great book.
1: <laughs> That's where I got the name Phaedrus from. Mm.
0: Yeah. And um, tell us a bit more about the character of Phaedrus in the book.
1: Well, Phaedrus is in the Plato dialogues, and it's um, it's about the he's a person from the countryside coming to the city. It's about the taming power of love, and in the book, Phaedrus is this person who also is takes this independent way towards quality, towards um, what he should be doing in his life. But he gets obsessive, and he kind of goes crazy and loses perspective. And goes through electroconvulsive therapy. And so the author who's writing the book is writing from the position of somebody who has been transformed by electroconvulsive therapy and is now more grounded. And his prior self was Phaedrus, was this wild person from Mm. the country who is sort of pure and wild in a way and now he was having to be worked within.
0: And he yeah, he's had to contact himself and uh, transform in some way.
1: Yeah, and there was a relationship between his crazy self in a way which had virtue and his current self and so Vedras was um, my alter ego in a way too because I was wanting to, I felt like you know, I wanted to get past culture and why I brought this up was this idea of the obstacle the way that um, I I built, my, I built a house at the edge of town when I was 21, and there was 1,000 acres across the street that was undeveloped. There was railroad tracks and little ponds, kind of tiny, tiny little ponds, not a lake or anything, but little hills and different trees and burned-out areas of the forest. And I could take um, uh, Phaedrus running through the woods off the leash. And there was a few horses there and some things, but so... The way that he moved through the woods was uh, a lesson to me, and I think about him almost every day. Something that, because what he would do is he went straight for his goal, and if there was like a hill in front of it, he he would just he has so much energy, he would just go over the hill. He would go through bushes. He would just cruise where he wanted to go, and if there was a you know a gully and stuff, he would just go down in it and around. And you notice, like here, there's a sidewalk in modern society. Western, there's sidewalks always. We walk
0: the path most traveled.
1: Yeah, and they're not always the most direct way to get there. And sometimes they involve a tiny bit of an obstacle, like in front of a building there'll be a little hill, but you have to walk way around this hill. But if you just walk over the hill, you get there faster, and you've had some exercise. So the way he moved through the world was this sense of obstacles were opportunities for exercise.
0: And finding his authentic path, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he had this quiet confidence. Um, One thing I learned about from him was, uh, and it's connected to psychedelics, I was a little bit nervous about the police at that time. And I had a bunch of big LSD stash. And I had a friend, I asked him if he would store it for me at his house. And he had five acres and kind of a farm. And he had this big Doberman that wasn't that friendly, but that I knew. And so there was a time I wanted to trip. And so I went over to his house to... um, get some, um, LSD, but he wasn't there. And the Doberman was like out back in the barn w- right where the freezer was. But I happened to have the wolf in, in my truck and the wolf was just about, um, five months old or something. It wasn't really, you know, fully grown or anything. Still... And so I thought maybe there's some way, cause the wolf, um, a lot of dogs wouldn't want to play with him because he was different, but some dogs would. So I thought, okay, I'll get him out of the truck and just see what happens. And so I um, took him off the leash and he wandered around the barn and he saw this big doberman sort of guarding the back door where the LSD stash was. And he just wandered around and he saw the doberman and um, and he just kind of s- casually kind of stepped on him and just sort of checked him out and it it kind of really perplexed this Doberman, and he just got up and, and walked away from the door and left the barn and let me go in and get my LST stash. And, you know, the Doberman, was, this was just, they were big difference in sizes at the time. But oh. it was just this kind of quiet confidence that this wolf had that I was trying to absorb and also trying to... Um, Realize that the myth is different than the reality that this was first off wolves are born with their eyes closed for a few days and because the humane society knew that this wolf was pregnant they had taken um the cubs away from the mother they were prepared for that and they were raised by people and so when they open their eyes they open their lives on eyes on people so they were kind of bonded to human beings
0: that's really beautiful and so yeah i I love this aspect of uh Just dispelling this, this, this sense of, of myth of the Doberman being that the powerful dog.
1: Or the myth of the wolf is how I meant it, it was that we think wolves are wolves don't really attack people. They're great social animals. They babysit for each other's kids. They, one of the best things about wolves is that in the pack when it's, there's a struggle for dominance, And there's a fight between like a younger wolf who's reaching maturity and the older wolf who's in charge that rarely, rarely, rarely does the older wolf get killed. You know, they can have these dominant struggles that change things without murder. So they're incredible animals. And That's they're... something
0: completely different from the, sp- the perspective I had. It sounds quite scary, t- taming, yeah. taming a wolf. Yeah. I guess we all, we all have these uh, uh, myths and personal myths. And yeah. I think it's an important thing to, to recheck these stories, both externally but within ourselves. And that is what allows us to, to move through obstacles, to move through blockages in, in, our, in our path.
1: Yeah, and I knew that the myths of the wolf were somewhat similar to the myths of psychedelics, that we have these ideas that these are going to drive people crazy, and that they're, and, and there's some um, situations where that's true, but these are um, tools to be tamed and used, but tamed in a way where it, it takes us beyond um, the fences of ourselves. So it's not really tamed. It's, it's a way to use it to help us grow in ways we might not otherwise grow.
0: It's about the relationship you have with them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and so I, I felt that I um, I learned a lot from um, just seeing how the myth... Wolves haven't... Only rabid wolves have ever killed people. Wolves don't attack people. I mean, we... You know, lions kill people, tigers kill people, but wolves do not kill people. And we people. know that
0: LSD has never killed a person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not from physically. No, no. no. And no. People have done stupid things and people have died. Or...
0: And the certain setting is very important. Yeah. But I think so, There's like... people
1: who have committed suicide under the influence of psilocybin or LSD out of fear.
0: Yeah, so set and setting yeah. is very important. Yeah. It's not just yeah. set and setting for psychedelics, but I think it's important to reflect on the set and setting we have just in our lives. Yeah. Psychedelics kind of sensitize ourselves to that. Very much. And encourage us to be able to change and shape what we want for ourselves in the world.
1: Yeah, so, um, so you've just said it so very articulately. And so I wonder, like, what do your parents uh, think when you talk to them about psychedelics?
0: <laughs> I'm not sure what liberties I have to, to speak here, but I'll start with my mum. Right, my mum uh, is, is a Catholic high school teacher, very conservative. Um, she actually will say to people at my talks... I, you know, I grew up teaching young kids that drugs were bad, but I've seen the changes they have made in my daughter. I think it's very important that we have these compounds available for other people who may need them to heal or to mm. grow. Mm. Wow. My dad, uh, we've tripped together, and he, he's a he's a he's a conservative lawyer. Wow. <laughs> um, and I feel like they've been able to heal our relationship with that, that difficult point in a young person's life when they are trying to outgrow their parents and and come into their own autonomy. We've been able to establish an adult relationship with the trip we shared.
1: Wow. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah, it is really beautiful and very thankful for them to be able to allow that transition. Um, Wrapping up now, I think I think that's a nice. I think psychedelic family time is very important. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: do you want to talk about the how to educate uh, children or? Well,
0: I think uh, also maybe let's start with educating parents. Mm, mm. Uh, I think the key thing is is that we have now a, a very full body of evidence for the safety of these drugs in the right set and setting and for the promise they hold for deepening relationships both to yourself, to the world, and to the people you love. We can now show people the evidence. There's also conversations like this. There's also videos of, of sessions of healing for yeah, of yeah. PTSD, thanks to the availability of that, of that media from the trials. Show your parents these things. Communicate.
1: Yeah, and we're about to start phase three to have the final evidence that the regulatory agencies need to make MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD into a prescription medicine, both in the U.S. and throughout Europe.
0: And we're still on track for 2021 for that, is that correct?
1: Yeah, there's some hurdles, some obstacles that we have to run over and accomplish ahead, but still, yeah. yeah, but we'll approach
0: them like Phaedrus, won't we? <laughs> we will. <laughs> we
1: <laughs> I, will. Have,
0: I have one last question. I like the idea of, uh, of memes and the of... Um, what, what would we like to spread into the world? Like, what is what is it that we want to leave behind? And if you could, I know there's probably many, but if you could just release one infectious <laughs> thought, one meme out oh, into man, the universe, what what's one know. of them? We could have another one another day, but we'll just get... Oh, we'll my God,
1: I, I, I don't have one, like, at the top of my mind. I'll have to think about that just for a second. So let's let's talk about something else for a moment okay. while I'm trying to come up with something. Why don't
0: you ask me... Uh, oh, okay, so... <laughs> all right, so... You can take it off, so, you can take so it off. So you what's your uh, daily pressure? meme... Uh, my daily meme. Okay, I get, I, 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 I was, the, the obstacle one's important, but I guess, um, <laughs> let's see. I think it's, I'd say that self-acceptance is the boundary to your personal freedom. That if you can approach yourself, if you can meet yourself, look yourself in the mirror and recognize who you are right now, that's the next step of becoming who you wish to be. Wow, I like I, so acceptance is a boundary to freedom. That's the one I would
1: okay. spread out. All right. So uh, I came up with one <laughs> in the back of my mind. Um, so I've been emailing Stan Groff today, earlier this morning. And so what he said, something that um, I think is so eloquent. Uh, we, we talk a, lo- a lot about um, spirituality and you know, self-transcendence. And there's this idea of ego death. But the ego never really dies and we're always really watching, you know, even in these mystical experiences, somehow there's like a watcher or something. There's still some, something. So Stan has said that what we really, it's not so much ego death. What we really need to do is become transparent to the transcendent. Yes. You know, that that we're the filter there. We're We're still there. There's still this ego sense of who we are, but we can see... So, become transparent to the transcendent. There's
0: something more expansive behind that. I love the Buddhist concept that that you know, if we sit here now, we might feel uh, maybe our arms getting a little tired or or maybe we're remembering something, but that that which remembers or that that which feels tired isn't tired. There is something in the larger space of consciousness that we can find, pause, and rest in, and I think that's something that these tools of transformation, psychedelics, meditation, neurofeedback can allow us to find in our daily lives and I think it's very important and I thank you for making this your life's work and for creating these memes, these uh, (laughs) potentials for our future and engaging in the process in the way that you have
1: Yeah, I've been um, very fortunate to be able to do this and uh, um, have had these experiences and see change in my own lifetime
0: and there's there's more to come as I said, starting off the creative advance continues, yeah thank you Rick
1: (laughs) thank you (laughs) <laughs> and I just wanted to um, acknowledge the uh, my gratitude for uh, the marijuana plant, which I uh, consumed, smoked some of before our discussion, and I think it helped me be more emotional, more uh, bring more in, and uh, it was a wonderful conversation. And,
0: and I have to admit to my transformative tool, which <laughs> was a microdose this morning and thirty minutes of meditation. Both, <laughs> it's important. Yes, it's it's gone, gone, gone to stay